Hey, it's Kelly from Zinimi. Before we start this next episode, I have a quick question for you. How do you feel about being subpoenaed in your private practice? If you have any fear, sense of dread, or worry, you are not alone. Please join us for our upcoming training with Nicole Stoller-Peterson on mastering your subpoena process in private practice. It's going to be an amazing training to help build your confidence, to help you serve your clients better, and to take out the guesswork when it comes to being subpoenaed in your private practice. All you need to do is go to zinnime.com and check out the training there. You will also get a recording if you sign up. We can't wait to see you there. Welcome to the Starting a Counseling Practice Podcast, where we connect you with amazing, successful therapists from all over the country and all over the world to help inspire you and so that they can share what did and didn't work in the private practice journey to make your path a little easier and a little bit more fun. Today, we have Helen Elliott um, here sharing her journey of private practice and I'm really excited to catch up <laughs> and to um, dig into some of those nitty gritty fun pieces. Helen, thanks for being here. Thank you. I appreciate it. For sure. I'm excited. Tell everybody um, where you're located and what your specializations are. I live in Fort Worth, Texas. I have a counseling practice here and also in Cleburne, Texas, with the, which is due south of here. And I work with juvenile services with the kids on juvenile probation. Awesome. Um, Go ahead. I enjoy working with teens. I also work with young adults and young professionals and parents. I work with uh, behavior issues for kids, a lot of um, suicide, ideation, depression, and anxiety for all ages, really, but um, a lot of times with teens. And I also work with um, the older kids and enjoy them as well. Awesome. Um, I always like to ask this question, which is in like a minute or less, why did you decide to become a therapist? Oh, my goodness. Um, I really enjoy talking with people and helping people. Um, I realized that I seem to be better at listening and trying to sort out the details. Also, I um, was challenged in my younger life with certain uh, family dynamics, and that inspired me to want to help others. Isn't it interesting, those um, wonderful family uh, of origin things, how they can really help, um, I'm going to say, support us (laughs) in that process. I was actually, I don't know, are you a Ted Lasso fan by chance? I'm sorry? Are you a Ted Lasso fan by chance? No, unfortunately not. I, I've seen very little of them. Oh, they have this uh, whole thing where uh, one of the the gals, her mom is coming to visit. And she's like, I want you to come to lunch with my mom. And he's like, oh, he's like, absolutely. And he leans over to someone else and tells them and says, oh, I love meeting people's parents. It's like you get an owner's manual for why they're nuts. And... <laughs> silly thing of that but it's also I think 
like, it's not just why someone's nuts. It's like why they're awesome. It's why they have developed in this like amazing way with these beautiful skills. And there's so much that I, I think we just, sometimes we look at like the pain that we cause one another. And we don't always look at like the beauty that we kind of trigger kind of like that irritation and the clam or what have you with the pearl developing. Yeah, well, I saw the same thing. I taught school for 10 years and really enjoyed the kids, but sometimes I was kind of in a quandary about, you know, why does this child do this? Why is this so important? And sometimes the good behaviors too. And when I meet the parents, it's like, oh, I get it. I get it. Now it kind of (laughs) makes sense. But that was kind of fun to watch too, to kind of see the full picture. Yeah, I think that's the um, always a funny thing when I when I get irritated with, you know, humans just out in the world. I always remind myself that like there has never been a time where you don't hear someone's like full story and mm-hmm. not like get it and like go, oh, like actually this makes sense. And I, you know, I don't know that all of that just came to me in terms of your work with teens and, and families and especially with juvenile detention kind of stuff like you know, we sort of like, oh, how did this kid go so wrong? What happened? And you're like, well, you know, <laughs> bigger picture. Um, yes. How did you come to this, this specialty and to private practice in particular? Well, I think I wanted to do private practice. I, I think I could look back to my roots somewhere around uh, 14 or 15. And I had this really awesome um youth leader and I thought that was you know something I wanted to pursue and think about for the future and then I went off and got tried to get a degree in engineering and that (laughs) that didn't fly very well I realized I didn't want to do it so I came back to psychology and counseling awesome and when did you open your private practice about 12 years ago and what was the kind of the final straw or the 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 motivation to open it 12 years ago? Um, I had wanted to do it for some time. I know um, I taught school for 10 years and then I got my master's degree toward the end of that and then started into my practicum and uh, so on. Um, I really... I had just wanted to do it for a long time. And I know it's it's a little bit scary um, to kind of cut ties. I was making about 52000 a year. And I mentioned that because going from that to not was very scary. And uh, I had to figure out how to um, hold all my ends together. Yeah, I think that that piece of even if someone, and depending on where you live, right, in the United States, like $52,000 either sounds like a lot or mm-hmm. it doesn't sound like enough, but right. it's still something. It's still something that you know is coming on a weekly or biweekly right. or monthly basis. You know what your paycheck is. You know how much taxes are taken out. You kind of like know how to plan and budget for that. And then suddenly you move into private practice and depending on how that transition goes, you have to figure all this stuff out, including, oh, my my paycheck, what someone hands me isn't just my money. It's the government's <laughs> money. It's 
it's the state's money, it's self-employment taxes, it's all of these other pieces, it's all of these expenses, it's it's actually some of my vacation money that I'm going to need in six months or my sick time that I might need in nine months. Like there's a lot that comes out of someone handing you an amount. And so it is just so, um, it, it's such a shift in mindset, you know, because I think even the idea of, you know, at $52 or $52,000 a year, you're making like $26 an hour if you're working for right. Like right. On, on theory. Well, if that were true, I was a school teacher. And so that oh. 52,000 was more like 50 to 60 hours a week. Right. So you're like, oh, I'm making $20 an hour in that. Right. Case, right. So then when you go into your private practice and you think, oh, if I could even just make $60 an hour or mm -hmm. someone handed me $80 an hour, because we kind of associate it with our hourly rate at whatever right. it is, or we associate with our salary. And even if you made $52,000 gross in your first year of private practice, that's not what you actually got to like use to live. Right. You have all those expenses. And I think going from an hourly rate into private practice, you know, some part of you knows about all those expenses, but you don't really put it together when you're saying, oh, you know, sure, you can pay me $25 an hour. Was that what, so what, what did that look like? What are your first people? What were they paying you when they came in to see? Oh, them? when I started, uh, um, gee, I think some of my lower paying people were like 25 and 50. And it just obviously wasn't enough. Yeah. Yes. I think that I want to take a moment to talk about that because the the times when we sit down and kind of like do the math on it, right? So to look at, hey, if I can only see, even if I could see 30 clients a week, which is mm -hmm. usually not sufficient or what have you, like the cost of just my office space, you know, like that could be anywhere from two to ten dollars per 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 session or what have you that's right. sort of like the expense of that and you take that off of the 25 dollars, and then you look at like okay just me doing life takes like five dollars of an hour in terms of the other piece so you take that off in terms of general expenses in your office and then you take another 15.3 percent off <laughs> the top for self-employment taxes before we get into federal state taxes and you're suddenly going why is this so hard? Like, mm -hmm. Why can't I, you know, get ahead, pay for a fax machine? Why does when the taxes come at the end of the year, why does it feel like I'm going to have to be on a payment plan or something's not working? Like, I don't understand. And I think that that piece of $25 an hour as a, as a 1099 contractor or as a self-employed person, which are the same thing. I think there's a lot of people right now who are going to work for group practices as a contractor mm -hmm. and they're like, Oh, this is great. I was making $40 an hour over here and now I'm going to make $60 an hour. So I'm getting a 30% increase in P in fee, not realizing that 15% of that is right off the top is going away. And like when you're comparing those apples and oranges of, of an employment versus a being a business owner at 1099, like they just don't relate. You know? you know, I think one of the first things that caught my eye was that discussion of money. What are you worth? 
And I remember it very clearly. And I saw a very short workshop on it. I'm like, oh, you know, um, I've been selling myself short and also not planning ahead. So, you know, I didn't have uh, health care. I didn't have taxes. I didn't have um, vacations. None of that was covered. Yeah. Sick time with your computer, paper for the printer, <laughs> you know, fact tolls, tolls and gas. All of it. And I think that piece of, um, of learning how to do that math and um, the math can get kind of complicated. And I remember like when I started developing the, like the calculator, the, for our clients and started looking at, okay, how does this work? If I wanted to go backwards from the, here's how much the expenses are. This is what my tax rate looks like. This is how much I really want to like take home and put in my pocket so that, so that I could help people bridge the gap between a salary or, you know, here's my take home, here's my paycheck and like how that relates to being a business owner. And I was literally like in Excel, like in this, like, it was like, this is a circular thing. And I was like, wait, I don't mm -hmm. understand like how to do the math. It was really complex. And so I think it's such a, um, it's such a powerful thing for us as business owners to realize that it is kind of complex. And I think also the idea, like you talked about, like I'm selling myself short, like valuing myself as a therapist. Mm -hmm. But I think what I think about is the idea of just understanding that money is a resource, um, sort of like food or calories. You know, the idea that like, we, we just need food in our bodies to run. And mm -hmm. so even if I, I look at myself as like not valuable as a human, right. That doesn't mean I don't need food. <laughs> it doesn't, you know, even if I think of myself, like, I don't know if I'm valuable as a therapist. I don't know if I'm good enough. And yet I still need this resource. I still need income in order to survive and do this thing. And so concurrently I can work on seeing myself fully who I am as a therapist and also realizing that I can't be a good, like, I can't be a good therapist if I haven't eaten. Right. And if I you're cranky about bills that you can't cover. Yeah. Right. It's like, we would not, well, hopefully, hopefully <laughs> most of us do not regularly go into sessions when we haven't eaten for a day, we're not going in fasted or, you know, completely dehydrated or feeling like death or whatever, like that shouldn't be happening on the regular. And so the idea that we're going in like financially starving mm -hmm. and financially just at with carrying all this weight, it's like, how do you do your best work in that moment? And then it just perpetuates this idea that like, oh, I'm not, I'm not bringing a value. So then I really can't charge. So then I feel like crap. And it's just this ugh, so gross. And you want to bring value and you want to, <clears throat> as a fellow therapist said, you know, be there for those precious humans that have come to trust you and want to have help. And you can't bring it all with you, then you're not doing them a good service either. Yeah. So when you started to kind of have the turning point of, okay, I'm not giving myself enough resource. I'm not valuing what I'm doing. I'm not doing the math enough. How did that change the way that you charged or the contracts you accepted from insurance? How did that shift things when you started to 
change the way that you viewed the money? Well, I'm very glad that I had an experience in an office prior to opening my own practice where I listened to the office manager struggle with talking to insurances. And I said, what? (laughs) So I never actually took insurance. So I'm really glad I made that decision. Um, But that being said, got to inform me. (laughs) Right. That being said, um, as I moved forward, I started to feel, you know, less resentful. And I didn't even realize I was resentful. But I also noticed, you know, sometimes they just don't take it as valuable. And it's a funny thing about that. If you don't charge a reasonable fee, they don't value it either, even if you are giving them good advice, even if you are listening and putting your best self forward. And I find that um, even on the uh, sliding scale, when I do that on the lower end, they tend to not really Mm. use that and really get involved and invested in therapy. And so I decided I needed to minimize that and have more full paying clients. And I needed to set a limit on how many I would allow to do that because it was frustrating me to not see them progress. Yes. So I didn't feel as fruitful because they weren't wanting to get invested. And so it wasn't good for me either. Yeah. I think that's the, I think this is the piece that a lot of people don't like to talk about is that this idea of like we have, I'm going to say it in this weird way, but I hear people talking about when someone doesn't take insurance or when they don't have, you know, super low sliding scale and they say, we're not making therapy accessible, right? Mm-hmm. We're not making therapy accessible. Like how dare we as a, as a thing, not. Well, and I understand there's different um, levels of income, but I also understand that in some um, circles, it's not as valued. So they don't want to put the money forth because they're not sure that it's valuable and as a result they also don't put the effort forth you know so it becomes a vicious cycle but when they are invested in wanting to get better and they're ready to put the money forward and it matters to them it means something to them then they're going to be a lot more fruitful in their therapy they're going to progress a lot better a lot faster a lot more securely yeah it's, um, I've seen it again and again, and there, I'm sure everyone has a story of someone who was receiving free therapy or had, had some other experience where like somebody was really invested and mm-hmm. they had this pain, but I think it happens a lot. And I think we need to stop shaming therapists who realize that I'm not doing people a service to live as a martyr or to live as a pauper or to be putting myself into significant debt or, you know, all of these other things that if that's not actually creating the outcome that you thought was going to (laughs) create, if you can't actually sustain and you're going to end up leaving the profession because of it, right? like that's, that's not what we need. We have to be honest about what it takes for us to, sustain this work and how to get good outcomes because that's what changes people's lives. That's what makes therapy effective. And and good outcomes make us home too. It it really goes both ways. I feel so much better when I feel like we're moving forward, when I feel like my clients are successful. 
Yeah. And I think there's a lot of therapists. I mean, I've, I've asked therapists so many times over the years, Hey, like, what are you great at? You know, tell mm-hmm. me about, you know, how you work with clients. What, what does it mean? And they say, well, I don't really know. I, I think I'm okay. And like, they're not sure. And that was just like heartbreaking because nobody has taught us how to have these conversations with clients and how to dig in and understand what is or isn't working and how to refine it beyond, you know, a treatment planner workbook, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like the treatment planner workbook, like, you know, well, let me tell, are you having more than six to 10 of these, you know, interactions per week? You know, like it doesn't mean anything to you. It doesn't mean anything to your clients. Like, well, for some of you it does, but for all the rest of us where it's like, it's a feeling that you have in your gut that you, that, you know, something is shifting or you're maybe you're even unsure. And then suddenly this client who's so guarded, you ask them, you know, Hey, what's changed. And they, they start telling you, you're like, Oh, I didn't know. And why didn't that client tell me? Cause that may be part of their family of origin stuff that they're not allowed to talk about mm-hmm. what has changed or what's good. And also maybe a little bit that like, they didn't even realize until they stopped to think about it. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Okay. So what is, we know what therapy looked like or what private practice looked like then 12 years ago, what does private practice look like today? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, Back in the fall, I was looking at some of um, the programs and some of the comments by some of the new therapists on your program. And it just kind of blew me away how much further along. And I always think of all the things I need to improve on. But then I looked at some of their comments. I'm like, I know the answer to that. I know the answer to that. I know the answer to that. So I am definitely more confident in how I approach, uh, well, both the clients themselves, what we do in practice, but also how I set up my practice, what my schedule looks like, how my fees are, how I um, approach certain difficulties, how I set my boundaries for both my schedule and my time. Um, What What does your schedule look like today? Well, today I just have one, which is highly unusual, but I usually keep Wednesday more open because I also teach Taekwondo for several hours. <laughs> so a couple of nights a week, I teach Taekwondo. So there's no clients on those nights. Awesome. But um, I have a few clients on Monday afternoon, a few clients on Tuesday afternoon, maybe one on Wednesday, a few on Thursday and Friday's pretty full and two on Saturday sometimes. Mm, awesome. And, and I don't have any mornings. I'm doing workouts in the mornings. And uh, Monday and Tuesday are late. And then Wednesday and Thursday, I'm with the Taekwondo. Awesome. So it's kind of a little sprinkle, but it just, it fits mm. where I'm at. Um, I would like to get my two practices together, but uh, at this moment, I keep having more hits in my Cleburne office, which is the one that's south. And it's also um, just an area that's less well-served. So I've been hesitant to pull back. And there's like a six-time rent differential Mm. between the two offices. So the Fort Worth office is like six times the Cleburne office. (laughs) 
So, you know, the rent is so cheap. So, and, yeah. then, and I'm assuming the one that's south is just a longer commute or drive for you. It is. It's about 25 minutes, whereas the other one's 15. Uh, yeah, but both places um, are mine. They're set up. I share both offices, but for all practical purposes, my uh, partner's hardly ever in the Cleveland office, so I have pretty much full reign on that one. Mm. And the other one, um, we've worked it out to where she's there when I'm doing other things. So it's really handy. Mm. Um, but that being said, I do charge a little bit more in the Fort Worth office because of the higher rent. Yeah. And it just seems to make sense. Yeah. And the Cleburne office is a, a lower financial area. Um, socioeconomics are lower there by and large. So that's why I decided to do that. Mm-hmm. But I think that that piece of it is a socioeconomic, but it's also like, the six time different rent, <laughs> you know, like, I think that's the piece too. When I, when I look at what people like dig into is that often the math works out mm-hmm. if you're working in a place where, where things are really disadvantaged, where there is a, a lower, um, higher unemployment rates that should in theory, right. Translate to lower rents commercially for yourself, right. right. You know, lower housing prices, all of these other things. But when you look at what it takes for you to live a life where, where you are and where it takes for you to run a business, the math is the math. Well, and I still have to consider um, the gas and the tolls Yeah. and travel time. So I have to put at least a half hour between offices if I ever have things back to back. Yeah. So I try to, you know, sequester them in different places, <laughs> one office, and then maybe one at the other one. But I try to keep them, if I can, more in one office or the other. Yeah. So that way it makes it make sense for me. Yeah. And that, and it sounds like, again, that setting of boundaries has gotten mm-hmm. easier over the years. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give to uh, maybe even like another teacher or someone else who's coming from a salaried position, something they've been doing for a long time, and they're opening up a private practice. What are the things that you would tell them that you would you would have loved to know when you were starting out? Um, well, one thing is you don't have to do it the way anybody else does. It needs to make sense for you. So, for instance, what I said about mornings, I get up and I go run. And I do that frequently. And after I run, I go to Taekwondo. (laughs) And that makes me um, more pleasant to be around. And I feel good about myself. And my running is my coffee because I'm out for over an hour. And it's just like, (laughs) it just, I'm a lot happier when I do those things. And then I'm able to shuffle around a little bit whenever vacations come along. I feel a lot more free to shuffle around. I do remember something that Kelly said about, you know, sectioning off your vacation time ahead of time so you don't overschedule yourself and you know um, not to uh, cover that up. It's taken me a long time to get to where I'll just say, okay, this is just for me. I'm not going to try and schedule. I need to take care of this. I need to either have it for my family or for me, and I don't need to overschedule myself and just try to do everything. And it makes such a big difference in how you actually kind of do life. 
And it's funny too, like I can even, you and I talked kind of briefly in 2019. Um, and one of the things you were, I like, and I had written notes from our conversation and you were talking about like, really like vacations. Like I want to be able to like do this thing and I want to be able to like do my Taekwondo. Mm -hmm. And it's such a beautiful thing to see you in this moment. Like, yeah, Taekwondo is a part of my life and I have room for my practice and I have room for my vacations and, and I'm living out what I really want and desire. Well, at the time we were speaking, was it 2019? I was thinking it was later, but I was getting ready for a very big test in martial arts. And that was actually put off a year because of COVID. <laughs> but I was spending a very large amount of time in my training. And after we hung up, I just thought, oh, wow, I need to start putting that time. When I get done with that goal, I need to put that time back into my business and apply myself the same way I am in Taekwondo. Mm. To, I love that, the, that place of like, oh, I'm seeing so much growth in myself and my Taekwondo and it's, and it's giving to me personally, mm -hmm. but oh, what would it mean if I gave a little bit of that to my business and mm -hmm. gave it that kind of solid attention to learn these skills? Well, and, and right now I don't have any uh, particular goals. In fact, uh, my next degree is like seven years away. If I'll even do it, I don't even know if I'll do it. But I have some maintenance things that I do that make me feel better. And also I'm teaching. I'm running a, a school of about 80 students. Yeah. 80. <laughs> just, just about 80. It wasn't 100 pre-COVID, so. <laughs> oh, my gosh, Alan. Anyway, um, my point is this. Um, sometimes you have to shift uh, and if I'm able to do that and put my mind to things that I want to do, I can absolutely do this. Yeah. Yeah. I, what are your next goals in private practice? Um, well, continue to build the bottom line. But I've also decided as a, a former um, teacher who worked crazy hours, I don't want to make myself crazy. <laughs> Mm -mm. And um, I'm very fortunate that my husband has a good job. And um, if I wanted to, I could totally do nothing. But I'm, I can't do that. That's not me. And it's not respectful of him either. But as a result, I don't have to work crazy hours. So I can keep a reasonable amount of clients and put myself toward them in a logical way, but still spend time for me and my family. And but you're talking like, about like 13, 15 clients, it sounds like? Uh, no, it varies from week to week, but I would say um, I probably have about 30, but a few of them are um, every other week. You realize that's a full-time practice, Helen. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do. And like I said, I've got those other, other two jobs, and then I've got juvenile services. Um, so... Fortunately, that one's 10 minutes from my other office, my Cleburne office. So that one um, works pretty well. And I really I enjoy doing that. And it's the least paying, mm. but it's still, um, it's still good. It's still good. It, I see some really good results with the kids. Mm. And it's really rewarding to see that, I to think see that, that shift. Yeah, I love that you were like really focusing on your values 
and like what really brings you joy and making sure that you're checking in with your body regularly. And my, my, I love that thing. Makes me pleasant to be around. Like this is like, (laughs) brings me joy. Like, and I think there's a lot of, a lot of therapists that have gotten to a point that they are not pleasant to be around, that they don't feel, they don't even like being around themselves. They don't like the way that they're showing up in the world and they're feeling all this shame about it. When in reality, it's just, you're in an environment where you're not taking care of yourself. So Mm -hmm. you're miserable. Well, and one other piece that I always think about is what kind of example of I am I setting for them? Mm-hmm. If I don't take care of myself, I'm, how can I talk about taking care of themselves? Yeah. You know, I'm not setting a good example for myself, then how would I know how to guide them? Yeah. Oh, I love it. Helen, thank you so much for being here today. For You're anybody welcome. Anybody who is listening, um, Helen, do you want to give your um, your website address so people can go and check it out? Oh. Uh, oh dear helencounseling.com that's it (laughs) helencounseling.com oh my gosh with one l in case you're listening in the uk one l for helen yes one one l for helen and one l for counseling um traditional united states uh spelling or what have you Uh, For anyone who's listening, if you need some support in figuring this stuff out, we have free trainings for you, including how to set your fee, how to manage your niche, marketing, all these other pieces and starting your counseling practice. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. You don't have to make the same mistakes that all the rest of us made doing it on our own. There is free support for you. You can check it out at zinnyme.com. Until next time, y'all. And of course, if you like today's podcast, feel free to go and review wherever podcasts are reviewed, wherever you're listening to this. Bye, y'all. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Starting a Counseling Practice podcast. Just a reminder, if you want some support in your private practice, we have an upcoming free training on creating a subpoena process. So check it out at zinnime.com and we'll see you next time.